approach my colleagues. And, you know, despite some of our policy differences, it's a good place to remember that we are all coming from this genuinely, from this perspective. I think sometimes people love their city in a way that that ends up uh, occasionally hurting it and choking it. And then some of that is, you know, wanting things to be so exactly the same because you don't want your community to change. And something I tried to talk about on the campaign trail was sometimes in our effort to you know, wrap our arms around our city and squeeze it tight so that it didn't change at all. We actually were changing the composition of the people that live there. We were draining it of some of the working class and bohemian and other elements of our city that we actually cherished because we were so intent on, say, keeping certain building facades. And, you know, I, I think that's a conversation we need to be having as a community, which is overall, which is like, well, what are we trying to preserve here? Is it the buildings or the people? <laughs> Welcome to Infill, a Yimby podcast. I'm Anthony DeDuces, Yimby Action Board member and former Director of Policy and Research for Abundant Housing LA, and I'll be your guest host today. Election season in California is in the rearview mirror as voters elected candidates from governor all the way down to library boards. And voters' choices matter for electing pro-housing candidates and passing pro-housing reforms. Most recent progress on housing has happened at the state level but city councils remain very powerful on housing policy. And it's no surprise that most city councils use this power to block housing reform and cater to housing opponents, just as they have for decades. But some new city council members are pointing the way to a different path. This year, they found that a pro-housing message is a winning message, even in cities where NIMBY organizations are often influential. These candidates put the need to fix the housing crisis at the center of their campaigns, and they won. That's why I'm excited about our guests on the program today, Councilmember-elect Jesse Zwick of Santa Monica and Councilmember-elect Chelsea Byers of West Hollywood. Chelsea, Jesse, welcome to Infill and congratulations. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Anthony. This is really exciting to be here and really glad to be here with uh, Councilmember-elect Jesse Zwick. Oh, thank you. Very excited uh, as well, Chelsea. It's uh, fun to reunite in this context. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you both so much. So first question, both of you are longtime housing advocates and you've served in local government in non-elected capacities. What motivated you to get involved in those arenas of life? I guess, Jesse, do you want to go first? Yeah, happy to. Um, My way into, you know, I've always been quite an appreciator of politics, but my way into really um, digging into the local political arena had to do with the homelessness crisis here in Los Angeles. I was at first just a bystander to what has been just a slow motion, really humanitarian crisis on our streets. And after, you know, deciding to get involved as a volunteer working in homeless services, it really just took me down a rabbit hole um, um, reading about policy um, and the deep interconnections between homelessness crisis and our housing and land use policies. And at a certain point, um, I just felt like the the best way to make an impact in the area that I cared about was to sort of uh, enter the arena of politics where these important policy decisions get made. My story's um, pretty similar. Homelessness was my entry point at a local level. And for me, it began um, with a conversation around life-affirming resources and where governments were making investments. At very early age in my life, I 
began um, anti-war activism. And at a very high national level of politics, we can have those conversations, but at a very local level, we see the impacts of making poor choices where we invest our dollars. The housing and homelessness crisis in Los Angeles um, was something that opened my eyes to the ways that our you know, governments have greater capacity for care, but we're under flexing those muscles or even you know, worse, we're making intentional choices to put resources in violent mechanisms um, and homelessness was the place we saw that exacerbated. So I'm just thrilled that that path of anti-war activism put me in a place like the Human Services Commission in West Hollywood, where I could see where we were supplementing people's lack of resources through direct services, like mental health services, other health resources, and housing continues to be one of the most underfunded places um, that people need direct service support. Okay, so bo- both of you were very active making positive contributions outside of elected office. So then what made you decide to run for city council? I will remind you, it is, after all, a low-paying part-time job. It's not glamorous, and there's a heavy time commitment. Uh, Chelsea, I'll put it to you first. Sure. Um, I mean, for me, it's about scaling impact. It's about being able to do so. I am 33 years old, and I've already spent um, the majority of my life doing work like this. And I fiercely believe that more young people need to be at the helm of government. And I can't believe that without taking that opportunity myself at some point. And for me, it was sort of looking around the room, seeing who else was able to do this and knowing that it was me. I had to, I was being asked by my peers and by other leaders in the community and eventually to miss that opportunity to scale the impact of where my advocacy could land um, would be a failure on behalf of the issues I've always tried to do my best for. So this was the the natural path or the natural extension of my advocacy. And I'm really glad all the hard work paid off. I would just, yeah, I would uh, second what both of you just said. I think uh, the nature of the job being one that is um, a high level of commitment with a, a low level of um, uh, direct material compensation uh, is a real um, access and equity issue, frankly, and it, it doesn't make it easy for all people to participate at the local level. And as Chelsea said, I think I was in a position where I, I had the time and resources to do it and to, to do something good. And, and it did feel sort of like an obligation, especially as a, as a young person, um, to represent the particular concerns of young people in our city who are, are among the many groups who I think are most acutely feeling the effects um, of our housing crisis. And I think another thing that I'll just touch on briefly, because it relates to Chelsea and my story, is that we we also met prior to this, um, I'm helping uh, Progressive Council member Mike Bonin um, with a, a recall effort that was launched against him. We were helping de- defeat the recall effort that was that was launched against him. And I think on a really broad philosophical level, as someone who identifies with a lot of progressive policies and politics in our city, I, I had become a little frustrated with ways in which I think the, the the left was hampering its own ability to achieve its goals by by not being more robustly pro-housing. Um, and I think I saw in that election also some of the effects of, you know, the, the longstanding nature by which the Democratic Party hasn't done enough on this issue and the fact that they're are ultimately going to be facing a lot of blowback for the consequences of not building enough housing, especially when it comes to homelessness in our city. And it kind of seeing all the vitriol in that election, you know, it was it was it was intimidating in the sense of not necessarily making it seem like it would be fun to enter the fray, but also motivating in the sense that I really did believe that um, we needed young leaders to chart um, a new progressive direction and show that it could be a winning one. So that's interesting. That actually leads me to the next question. Santa Monica and West Hollywood are both famously progressive cities. 
Now, granted, I'll also say that like progressive is open to definition. It means a lot of things to different people. But did you find that a pro-housing message is a tough sell to a progressive electorate? Or is there more pro-housing sentiment than the conventional wisdom might otherwise suggest? Jesse, you want to take that one first? (laughs) Sure, I'll jump in first. We can alternate like that. Um, Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think, as you said, it's such a nebulous word when you get down to it. And part of, I think, what the fight is, is to define it and to redefine it, you know, going forward uh, for, you know, what is progressivism? What does it mean now versus perhaps what did it mean in 1970 or in 1990? And I think that evolution is is a part of the political debate and, and an important one to engage in. I think that um, in Santa Monica, the various, you know, coalitions um, of people, uh, there's certainly like a lot of different ways that people think about progressivism, ways that they relate that to housing. And I think the way to win in these places was to be a bridge builder between, you know, some of these different groups, some of the people who were, say, skeptical of market rate solutions, but nonetheless did believe strongly in, say, a housing first approach to homelessness um, versus those that, that felt more strongly that, you know, we needed, say, a lot more market rate housing. I think, you know, these coalitions, at least in Santa Monica, all existed. And and I think um, it was very important to find ways to speak to each one and find common ground if we were going to be able to cobble together a majority of, of voters in a city where, frankly, there's also been like a strong rightward turn um, in ways that were antithetical to, I think, the traditional progressive values of the city as we would understand them in terms of saying that homelessness wasn't a housing problem. It was something that required a police response or, you know, the idea of trying to make housing affordable in the first place was in some ways not even desirable to some people. And I think that, you know, it was more important to say, what do we all agree on? You know, we agree that the affordability of our city is an issue. We might disagree in certain small ways as to how we're going to get there, but let's focus first on those commonalities. And and, and that was very important to the victory, I think, at least in Santa Monica. When it came to West Hollywood, uh, it's and it's so in- interesting, like relating the two experiences of navigating our cities and that you know framework of progressive values and how we can sort of play into them or, or not uh, in the policymaking realm today. In West Hollywood, um, you know, we're a 38 year old city just celebrating our anniversary this week of of cityhood, and we were founded at a time when the AIDS epidemic was devastating the communities um, across the country. But folks weren't looking that crisis in the face and naming it. And here in West Hollywood, where we have a robust queer community, you know gay men were disproportionately impacted and the progressive roots of the city were really founded in a place that could provide life affirming resources for people who couldn't access them elsewhere and that included healthcare and housing you know the very beginning of the city a city founded on principles of strong rent control so that people could maintain place and not have their connection to a community just be dislodged at any time People see that and feel that fiercely. And of course, as generations, you know, shift, there's a sense that what could happen today could force that loss. So what I did in my campaign was remind people of that story of that West Hollywood is a home for people who can't find it elsewhere. And unfortunately, and sort of wildly, we're at this point in time yet again, that the national conversation we're having is of exclusion. And I think we can embrace inclusion in a place like West Hollywood through our housing policy. And so when I said we have a moral obligation to house people in West Hollywood, um, because of the firm, you know, progressive values that we stand on, because people are welcome here when they're not welcome anywhere else. 
it actually awakened people in a way that um, I think we've been missing the opportunity to for some time. So I think we're at a, a new place in West Hollywood to have that conversation more earnestly um, because of our very progressive values. So Chelsea, I do want to I do want to follow up on that because um, you talk about like uh, talking about housing on the campaign trail. It's very easy for me to forget that everyone is not a housing nerd. So I'm curious, like, how did you talk about housing effectively to you know normies, for lack of a better word? What in particular, what do you find is effective when talking to people who are nervous about adding more housing in their neighborhoods for whatever reason? Sure. Um, honestly, I didn't find too many people that were outright nervous. A lot of people understood or could relate to their own experience of how challenging it was trying to find housing in West Hollywood and were pretty quick to agree that we needed more. Now, everybody feels a little constrained when it comes to how and where. Um, and so I have to come prepared with sort of an ability to unlock their imagination, um, being able to sort of map onto our community specific places and opportunities where housing can start to appear where it hasn't already. Um, that helps expand people's minds. And that sort of navigation through these conversations helps me tremendously. It's, you know, helping people see or believe what they can't see and believe yet um, because their values are oriented in the right direction. And the inability to stay connected to the conversation is because they're, I, you know, they just can't see what I can see so clearly. So it's my job to make sure that's possible. And some of the things I would do would be like really just opening a map on my phone and showing them specific parcels of land that the city <laughs> had ownership of or that were clear opportunities for new development and starting at those places helped keep them engaged in the conversation all along the way so it was helping make the invisible visible in a lot of different conversations all throughout the community i love that with the app that's really that's really clever jesse same the same question to you how do you what do you say to folks who are nervous about more housing in their neighborhoods well, I think, um, yeah, stepping back even a tiny bit from that, like Chelsea said, I, I found there was an interesting divide and when talking to people where at times, um, you know, I'd say the vast majority of people, like Chelsea said, were, were not anti-housing. They, they did, as, as Chelsea said, recognize the need for more housing. And I think sometimes there was a weird inverse relationship between people's deep engagement in the political process and their views on this, where the average person who, say, didn't participate locally, if you said to them, hey, housing's pretty expensive around here. We could probably use more of it. They'd say, yeah. And then the more you kind of got into the weeds with someone who maybe was deeply engaged in the process, they would maybe try to draw you a six blackboard equation as to why new housing would not lower <laughs> prices. And, and then those were the people that for whom, you know, it was more challenging. And I think, you know, for part of that, part of the lesson for me was just remembering that this is a big city and that, you know, of course you play the inside game and you, you talk to insiders and you try to garner the support of key groups, but equally important is just bringing new people into the process, people who are less dogmatic and perhaps just more sort of open-minded to things, or, or maybe just, you know, more open to sort of some of the common sense notions around supply and demand or things like that. So part of the whole exercise of the campaign was also just to bring in new people and people who perhaps, you know, maybe didn't normally think about participating at their very very lo most local level of government. I think there also is typically, or I found to be typically a divide between what age someone was. If, if they were, say, my age, uh, you know, mid thirties or below, they had most likely experienced very acutely the effects of trying to find housing in the city, whether it's 
trying to find an apartment they can afford or trying to find a house they could afford to buy, like both have become just so incredibly difficult that it it didn't take a whole lot to make someone of that age kind of see the problem and understand its its um, level of importance. Whereas, you know, if you had an older segment of the population that maybe was very lucky to put down a down payment in Santa Monica in 1980 for, you know, a house that was worth $75,000 at the time or something, or, you know, or who had snagged a rent controlled apartment in 1989 and had held on to it ever since, you know, they weren't necessarily feeling as acutely the effects of the crisis as they are now on the rest of the population. And I think there were a few ways to bring them, you know, on board, I think for a certain age group, um, specifically people who were parents of some of my friends, um, I definitely at times asked them about their children, you know, where their children lived. And, you know, it was surprising, you know, or maybe not surprising extent, you know, I would say, you know, how many of your children, um, and, you know, have moved to Oregon, Washington, Colorado, or Texas, a good number of them would always raise their hands, because that's, you know, the effect of the crisis. And I think saying, well, you know, if, if this doesn't something affects you, it most likely affects your children, and your children's children. And, and wouldn't it be great to create a scenario in which we could have some real intergenerational family connections where that didn't feel like it would be a luxury. And, and I use my personal story in that where I was trying to grow up um, and make a life with my kid where I had grown up and, and you know, have him live close to his grandparents and, uh, and how hard that was today. And I think that some of those things were, were useful for people that perhaps themselves didn't feel it as acutely themselves. So now that you're entering office, you'll have an opportunity to act on your pro-housing message and values from your campaigns. How specifically should your city solve its housing affordability crisis? And what will you do in office to achieve progress? That's a big question. I know, but, right? Uh, it could be five <laughs> questions. You know, uh, I, I will say that, you know, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, a lot of the major action on this has been happening at the state level. And, and as a result, cities around the country, including ours, are, are, are having to react and, and come up with a lot of solutions or they're forced into figuring out a lot of solutions that they maybe otherwise had been putting off. And, you know, I'm referring specifically to the arena obligations, which uh, especially in this last cycle were much more ambitious. And, and had a lot more consequences if cities sort of failed to to live up to them. And, and, and Santa Monica in particular had a, had a fairly ambitious RENA allocation. And one of my, you know, motivations for running in the first place was watching the city council prior to the one that I'll be joining, you know, really spend most of its time for upwards of two years figuring out how they could avoid that obligation, how they could, you know, try to wiggle out of it, how they might try to sue the state or otherwise anything but actually, you know, follow through on it. And, you know, I think as many people saw more recently, the consequence of their inaction and, and inability to pass a really um, meaningful housing element plan led to the city losing almost all control over its local zoning. Um, and I think that that has really chastened people into now understanding that it's important to meet those state obligations. But that said, you know, a housing element is, is really just a really rough plan for, you know, accommodating a certain number of units over the next decade. But it's not that specific granular zoning red line that has to occur that will actually produce the requisite amount of below market and market rate units that Santa Monica has to meet. And there's still no guarantee that we'll be able to meet that number. And I mean, I'm someone as a, as a person who does kind of enjoy nerding out on housing policy, um, very excited to get into the weeds on that very thorny thing where it's easy to say, yeah, we'll rezone for more housing. It's much harder when you go 
block by block, uh, you know, in your city and figure out how you're actually going to do that. And, and that's something I'm looking forward to participating with closely with the Planning Commission and, and others. And, and I do hope that sort of that pressure from the state gives us more leverage than, than we might have had in the past to sort of demand changes that will make sure that, that those goals are realized because, you know, the consequences for, for not doing so are real. So I think that that, despite, say, in my case, being in a minority of, of council members who maybe have some of this view, we nonetheless, there's another entity with a big stick that, that, that you know, is sort of in the room that we're all going to have to contend with. And I think, you know, it makes our jobs a little easier when it comes to, say, figuring out the best way to um, meet these targets that have been given to us. Before, Chelsea, before I turn it to you, I'm just going to give the audience a little context on housing elements. These are long-term plans that cities are required under state law to publish every eight years. And these plans lay out a strategy for how the city will achieve a housing growth target set by the state. Santa Monica's housing growth target is about 9,400 homes, while West Hollywood's is nearly 4,000 homes. So what Jesse's referring to is that Santa Monica's housing element got a lot of attention just before election day because it was out of compliance that this, the state hadn't approved it for nearly a year. And during the time it was out of compliance, developers proposed over 4,500 homes through an avenue called the Builder's Remedy, which folks who follow Chris Elmendorf on Twitter might have seen. This is a state law that lets a developer propose any housing project, regardless of existing zoning, and it's automatically considered approved as long as it doesn't present a danger to health or safety and sets aside 20% of the units for low-income residents. Uh, at least in the city of Santa Monica, if all those projects move ahead, the city could witness the construction of more than twice as many homes as were produced over the past 20 years. So I'll come back to that in a sec. I do just want to... Can oh. I also follow up a tiny bit more? Um, yeah, certainly. Insp inspired me. Um, uh, thank you first for providing the context. I was throwing out a lot of things there that were pretty specific to Santa Monica. But in addition to that, I just wanted to say that, you know, one of the debates as well around the fact that Santa Monica had a really robust um, target number for low income housing was everyone agreed that they wanted to produce those units. But there was a real disagreement, I think, in the city over how to do that. And you know, you had a lot of people saying, well, I'd love to build those, um, you know, say 6,000 below market units, or, or perhaps it was more like four. But the, the point being is they said, I'd love to produce them, but, you know, that would cost us as a city upwards of $4 billion, because the only way they could conceptualize doing so was through uh, a, a, a plan of basically um, combining state, federal and local grants and tax credits, you know, and, and that would be approximately the cost of building all those units from scratch if the, if the government itself um, were to foot the cost. And I think, you know, the other solution around, say, providing some sort of inclusionary program or density bonus program or otherwise to sort of incentivize the production of some of those units on the on the market was something that was really um, not really considered in a serious way because there was just this real fear of the number of market rate units that would be required to say help produce those units. But personally speaking, I'm I'm really an all of the above person. I say that I say yes to all, both and, and all those things a lot when it comes to talking about housing. And I think that you know the city set aside a lot of city owned land and parking lots and things like that that they hope to produce. 100% deed-restricted affordable housing on, and I'm all for that. Um, and at the same time, they're also going to need to come up with a real, you know, inclusionary policy that promotes, you know, the construction of the majority of those units, because we just simply don't have the funds at the local level to build all the things we're required to build. So we really need to look again to this both-and policy of both, you know, a robust inclusionary strategy, but, you know, also, of course, setting aside public-owned land for some of the more 100% deed-restricted projects. Makes sense. Uh 
Chelsea, once you enter office in West Hollywood, what do you think the city should be doing to achieve uh, progress on the housing shortage? First, we got to pass the housing element. We haven't done that in West Hollywood either. So we're vulnerable to or or open to builders remedy um, solutions also. We got to pass that housing element. I was one of the appointed members of that housing element task force here in West Hollywood. So I've seen that process from the very beginning, the cycle, and I'm excited to pass that. We know um, those units are also just a floor. It's not the ceiling for what we have to build. And in the many ways that I can enter this conversation and begin to change the way we have a conversation around housing that's first and foremost what I'm really looking forward to doing. Like Jesse mentioned, part of the work of campaigning and winning on a housing message was bringing new people into the conversation. Um, It was also helping people broadly realize that we're just as accountable to future constituents as we are to the ones to here today. And I take that responsibility seriously. I say to people all the time, I hold a chair open in the room um, to remind myself of the voices who aren't yet here, but will be deeply affected by the way you know we go about our advocacy or policymaking. And I think that is something I hope to do in such a way that can inform the community to see how we have to do this differently. Like we have not been building policy at a local city level that helps us move towards a future that is inclusive, just, you know, climate resilient, all those things, doing policymaking in a way that speaks to what the future needs and not just the immediate needs of people who are housed is the big difference maker I intend to bring right off the bat. So Chelsea, you mentioned the the West Hollywood housing element. Mm -hmm. Uh, A recent analysis by Abundant Housing LA and Yimby Law reviewing the latest version of the housing element found that it was unlikely to achieve the city's housing growth goal because of unrealistic assumptions. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you think the city can strengthen its housing element to maximize the chances that it's ultimately approved by the state and what West Hollywood should do if, as you mentioned, builders remedy style projects get, uh, get proposed. Yeah, I mean, right away, the zoning is one of the constraints that we're facing. There were a number of parcels identified where we would need to max out density and, you know, it has to go exactly according to plan just to meet the current goals. That doesn't create a plan that allows for us to create future plans. You know, we've basically listed all the vacant available land left. Um, I top list of sites available for developers now. And if we do that, then presumably we wouldn't have anywhere else to build in West Hollywood for the future. So that doesn't create the conditions to allow us to continue to create housing plans. That's a a big problem. Um, We have to talk about the zoning conversation. West Hollywood has a Santa Monica Boulevard and that's basically one stories. There's parts of it that are two stories, but not enough parts of it have housing on it, period. Those are big places where the community is going to have to have some conversations. We also are unique, even though we're 1.9 square miles. We do have a couple of places where the city or county through Metro own land and serious amounts of land. So we have to look to those opportunities to max out the um, type of housing. And as Jesse's indicating, maybe these are places where we can meet some of those very low affordable housing needs. So we can look to other places in the community and allow for that market rate collaboration to continue building the housing at all levels. No, that makes a lot of sense. I guess a question for both of you, Chelsea, first, um, Some of your new colleagues, I'm not going to name names, are very outspoken and in a few cases, ferocious opponents of housing production and rezoning and ambitious housing elements, while still others are skeptical or at least 
afraid of attracting opposition from NIMBYs by being outspoken about the need for more housing. Given that environment, how will you work with your colleagues to achieve the housing reforms that you believe are necessary? As I'm getting to know more of where people's perspectives are rooted, it's understandable. And I think there's places that we can collaborate across the board. West Hollywood is very small and we are a very tight-knit community. And it means that we have to bring people along with us. Now that's being said, it doesn't mean that everybody has to be happy with all the decisions that are made. And I believe fiercely that this community cares about the future of who lives here too. So I'm excited and anxious in some ways for the tough conversations that we're going to have to square up with that are often generational differences, economic status differences. You know, I I don't have a family that even owns a house. My parents are all renters in Arizona, you know, living without a retirement fund. And when I think about who I'm going to be having conversations with in my community about housing, we just have very different lifestyles and very different backgrounds. And I hope the lived experience I'm bringing to this role can help people see a different set of community right? A different set of people and their needs and how other people have grown up and struggled and found their way to West Hollywood and that they may have an evolved sense of set of needs that our government is responsible to now. Again, it's just through honest conversations, bringing my lived experience to the table and meeting people where they're at and continuing the hard work of bringing in other voices to the conversation. Because, you know, the room that I walk into isn't the only people in West Hollywood. There are more people who are interested in the type of direction we're going to go. I think Chelsea said it really well. I mean, I I think everyone who serves on city council, um, in part from what you alluded to earlier, um, Anthony, um, is, you know, doing it because they love their city and they're coming from a place of wanting to make it better and do right by it and serve it. And I think that's just a good starting place to have when I approach my colleagues. And, you know, despite some of our policy differences, it's a good place to remember that we are all coming from this genuinely, from this perspective. I think sometimes people love their city in a way that that ends up uh, occasionally hurting it and choking it. And, And some of that is, you know, wanting things to be so exactly the same because you don't want your community to change. And something I tried to talk about on the campaign trail was, Sometimes in our effort to, you know, wrap our arms around our city and squeeze it tight so that it didn't change at all, we actually were changing the composition of the people that live there. We were draining it of some of the working class and bohemian and other elements of our city that we actually cherished because we were so intent on, say, keeping certain building facades. And, you know, I I think that's a conversation we need to be having as a community, which is overall, which is like, well, what are we trying to preserve here? Is it the buildings or the people? And, And, you know, can we do both or... You know, is there a way we have to be flexible um, in in both and in, in one in order to really kind of preserve the other? And you know, I think beyond that, uh, I hope that you know the fact simply that 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 I was outspoken on these issues and that I was able to win such a commanding margin of votes. I think you know maybe does open people's eyes a little bit to the fact that, as Chelsea mentioned, the the community is bigger than the sort of regular players and commenters who are who are always in the ears of of, of elected officials, and that it's it's important to keep in mind. And I hope these election results would help make that clear that there may be a a certain percentage of people who are deeply, deeply engaged. And as a as a policymaker and elected official, I'm sure I will hear from them constantly. But it's also really important to know that, you know, in Santa Monica, at least it's a city of 100,000. And most people don't have the time to comment and weigh in. But it doesn't mean they don't have strong opinions on this. It doesn't mean their opinions are invalid. 
And I think that the election speaks for itself that 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 those opinions, you know, are more diverse than than certain electeds perhaps think or imagine um, in their day to day interactions with with those that really engage the most. And I think part of my job will be to remind people that you know the city is bigger and more diverse than than perhaps the constituents that we hear from every day. And as Chelsea mentioned, try to find ways to bring those people in and make their voices heard, not just every four years or every two years, but you know on a more regular basis. Um, uh, it's difficult, you know, and these meetings are are often in inopportune times and they can be tedious and long and people have other obligations, but that's currently the system of political participation that we have and, you know, encourage people to, to utilize it. Last question for both of you. Imagine it's your last day in office. Mm-hmm. How will you know that you've been successful as a city council member? What do the Santa Monica and West Hollywood of the future look like? I love this question, Anthony. Um, <laughs> it got me like weirdly emotional so quickly because what a gift to think of a, a life well spent in this role. Um, for me, I will know I'm successful if I'm thrilled with the, uh, maybe not necessarily thrilled, but you know, supportive and eager to see the next council come in. Um, I, I really think part of what I want to be building in West Hollywood is uh, you know a bench of leadership and not, I don't even like that word bench. It's sort of like a, a a community of leadership, people who know that they can step in and out and be there to support each other. I don't feel like that's where we're at totally right now. Um, I really want to do a lot of work to invest in the leadership of other people in this community and bring other people up through the issues so that you know and can look around and see who has your back, who's here trying to build the same, you know, West Hollywood of the next generation. That would be the mark of, of a West Hollywood life uh, in office well lived for me. That's a that's a really good answer and one that I hadn't thought about. So I'll I'll say that that's part of mine too. But um, in, in addition to that, I think you know I think places like Santa Monica and West Hollywood. Another thing that I've thought about a lot is that you know they're small cities. Um, when it comes to some of these regional issues around homelessness, housing, transportation, climate, you know they can't solve these issues on their own. But I think what they have the power to do is really set an example for other places and be a pilot in a demonstration project for some of these big ideas that we hope to kind of usher forth city or county or statewide in the future. So, you know, when I look at things that are being talked about that aren't implemented yet, you know, whether it's really great, healthy, complete, mixed use, multimodal streets, you know, like maybe we could have one of those in Santa Monica so people could look at it and see, wow, this could be everywhere. Or, you know, when we talk about social housing and that is a model for the future, like, wouldn't it be great to have one of the first social housing projects, you know, in Santa Monica mm-hmm. and, you know, everything from there to, you know, our mental health outreach and coming up with, you know, innovative ways of responding to nonviolent situations and crime. And, you know, just like Santa Monica is a cultural leader and, and an innovative civic leader in so many ways. And I wanted to set that example, you know, specifically when it comes to issues of housing and transportation. I want to say, you know, Barcelona is doing all this cool work around super blocks and slow streets. Like we should be at the forefront of that. And, you know, as a person, as a, as a city that's often been at the forefront of political movements, you know, I want us to still be at the forefront of some of these changes that we see happening in Paris or Barcelona or elsewhere so that we can really put our flag in the map and, and be that sort of city on a hill, so to speak, for for cities across the state. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Chelsea Byers, Jesse Zwick, thanks so much for joining us and best of luck on the job. Thank you so much. It was really fun to to chat. (laughs) 
If you're excited about the pro-housing wins we're celebrating, please consider joining Gimby Action as a member. We fight for abundant, affordable, sustainable, and equitable communities for people across America, and our members are essential to our work. Join us today by going to yimbyaction.org slash join. For now, this is Anthony Deduces for Infill. See you next time.